We will be looking today in Acts chapter 8, verses 9 through 25. Acts chapter 8, verse 9 through 25. If you would, church family, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Acts chapter 8, verse 9. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans." This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Bow your heads with me. Lord, as we come today to this passage in your word, as we come and study what it is that uh, the great Dr. Luke has written down for us today, Lord, as he was instructed and guided by the Holy Spirit, I pray, God, that you would give us wisdom that you would guide us as we study in the same way you guided him as he wrote. And Lord, I pray that you would illuminate our hearts, open our eyes and our ears to see and to hear the truth that you have revealed for us in the scriptures. I pray today, Lord, especially for wisdom when we, as we come now to a particularly um, sometimes difficult passage. And Lord, I pray that you would guide me as I teach and all of us as we pay close attention to what we have before us. I pray that it might serve to our benefit and to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. In the Star Wars movies, which I'm a big fan of, I find that I have, in a sense, grown up in kind of a golden age of Star Wars. Hate to be this way, but if I'm being frank, the kind of things that Lucasfilms, uh, directed by Disney, is putting out now are kind of garbage. If that offends you, I'm sorry but they're kind of garbage. I remember in my day, I remember as a very young child, whenever episode one 
So that was the first of the prequels that were to come out was released, and it was huge. It was a big deal. After years of waiting, the, the original trilogy had been out for so long, and, and we had waited, we had anticipated the, the day when the prequels would come, and now we, we had them. And I got the, the, the joy, the privilege of going to see at least the second two prequels in theaters. I don't mean to brag for you who are younger than me, uh, but it was pretty awesome. It was pretty awesome. And one of the things that, was, that makes the prequels, especially as they were new and as they were coming out, makes them so unique and so fun, so enjoyable to watch, is the aspect of the prequels that as we are introduced to this character, Anakin Skywalker, unless you just began with episode one, which no one did, we'd all already seen the other movies, we all knew what was going to happen, you know as you were introduced to this little boy on Tatooine named Anakin, you know what, what's going to happen. You know what he's going to turn into. And you know that because you've seen episodes four, five, and six. You know that this little boy named Anakin is eventually going to become whom we now know as Darth Vader, one of the most evil, menacing figures that fiction has ever produced on the screen. And what's, what makes this so interesting, I think for me as a child, so like just kind of drawing in was seeing the development of this character who I knew was going to become Darth Vader, seeing his de development, seeing how he went from Anakin, this little boy on Tatooine, to this evil Sith Lord. We already knew who he was going to become. That was no surprise. That was no secret. We weren't holding our breath to wonder what was going to happen to Anakin. We knew what was going to happen. So there was really no suspense, really, as to what was going to be his fate. But even still, and I think because we knew who he was going to be, watching it unfold, seeing in episode two the, the roots of, of anger and hate begin to, to take hold, and then in episode three, seeing those things along with his passions uh, kind of taking him over and turning him into Darth Vader is what makes those movies so enjoyable. People can complain about the prequels all they want. Certainly, they were not the original trilogy, but one thing they had was the, the joy or the excitement or the suspense of seeing who Anakin was becoming. I bring this up to say we have something similar in the pages of Acts. Because the thing is, we have actually already been given, besides the fact that we live in the day and age that we live, we are given in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, a glimpse into what the church is going to become, into what God is going to do and how he is going to expand his kingdom. What do we see in Acts chapter 1, verse 8? The Lord Jesus says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Jesus' words and Acts chapter 1, verse 8, already give us a glimpse of what is going to become of the faith. What is going to become of the church. That though this movement has begun in Jerusalem, and indeed for the first few chapters of the book of Acts, is confined largely in this area of Jerusalem. We know, because we've already been given a preview, we have the rest of the New Testament, we are living today, we know what is going to become of the gospel. 
but isn't it yet still amazing to see how God is working to bring this about? And so we have for us today what, what could be described as installment number two, or as what I have titled Gospel Expansion Chapter 2 in the book of Acts. Because what we have presented for us here now in the book of Acts is phase two of this movement that the Lord is doing with his church. That as we saw last week, as persecution came up and as, as Saul was ravaging the church and the believers were dispersed out among the surrounding cities and towns, we see now the gospel has now come to Samaria, to the very place that Jesus said it was going to come outside of Jerusalem. We see, in a sense, chapter two of God's plan of expanding his kingdom, of gospel expansion. And so now we have before us this this great occasion to look at what God is doing and see how he is bringing it about. Even though we already know what's coming, we know that the gospel is going to go to the ends of the earth and his apostles are going to be his witnesses all the way. But here we now have a moment when we get to see how the Lord is miraculously doing this one bit at a time. And it's always a good opportunity for us to see this. To not just get to know that God is going to do a work, as he says in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, but get to see it unfold before our very eyes. It is a, a joy to us. It is a benefit to our faith. It is a privilege and a building up of our confidence in who God is and the plan that he is working out in us as we see it on the pages of Acts. And so we begin today by, by breaking this text up into three sections. Three sections that we're going to kind of break it down into as we look at chapter 2 in gospel expansion. The first point, the first section that we're going to look at is in verses 9 through 13. And this is point number one, supernatural upgrade. As we come to this, this, this passage of scripture and where we enter into Samaria, we are immediately introduced to this one character, this guy named Simon. Simon is one who was described as a magician, one who was going about doing all kinds of, of amazing sorcery and magic among the people. So amazing was his magic that all the people were in awe of him. All the people were amazed from the greatest to the least, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. Even Simon himself considered himself to be somebody great. This man, Simon the magician, was for the Samaritans what they had before the gospel entered. And they thought it was something great. They thought this was something amazing, the works that Simon was able to do. But they thought that only because they had yet to see the works that God was going to do. It's like, it's like they, they had something neat, but something that paled in comparison to something else. There's a, a song that, that was written by Stephen Curtis Chapman back in, it was released back in 2001. And it was a song called See the Glory. And the premise of the song is that what, what we have sometimes in the world is opportunities to see the glory of God on display. But oftentimes, what some people relegate themselves to are the things of this world that we maybe could even call common graces but things that, while they might be unique in aspects of God crea God's creation, pale in comparison to the true glory of God revealed in redemption. He says it's like, 
That's like playing Game Boy standing in the middle of the Grand Canyon. Or, or eating candy while sitting at a gourmet feast. Or waiting in a puddle when you could be swimming in the ocean. It's taking the, the gifts, the things that we see in this world around us, and making much of them when God has said there's something far greater that I have to show you, that I have to put on display for you. And for the people in Samaria, the moment now has come where they have been busy playing Game Boy, that they are now going to be introduced to this great Grand Canyon of God's glory. They thought the magic that Simon produced was pretty cool, but they thought so only because they had yet to see what God could do. In verse number 12, we see this word, a word that I like to mention a lot when it comes up in our texts, and it comes up a lot, and it is the word but in chapter 12, or in verse 12. It says, but when they believed Philip, as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus, they were baptized, both men and women. You see, these people were amazed at the works that Simon did. But this great transitional word, a word that often means that there is a, a shift in perspective, a shift in worldview, a shift in the narrative, demonstrates for us that for the Samaritans, there has now been a great shift in their understanding, a shift of their focus from the small, magical parlor tricks that Simon the magician was able to accomplish to the glory of God as it was revealed through the words that were preached by Philip and the signs and wonders that accompanied him. Once the disciples showed up, Simon's magic looked like a cheap joke shop novelty, didn't it? Looked like those little toys you go into a joke shop and you see like the, the TV showing you how to do these cool magic tricks, but then you buy the toy and like you try and do it and it never works. I was a victim to that many times as a kid. Spent a lot of my money on vacation on these little joke shop toys that, uh, that I could never quite get to look exactly right. That's what Simon's magic now looked like when the glory of God was revealed in Samaria to where the people said, what this guy has, it was neat. But what these men are now preaching and what God is doing through them is magnificent. It is glorious. It is beyond comparison. All that Simon could do was insignificant compared to the work that God was doing through the church. These people were witnessing more than mere tricks and they could not deny the supernatural, even divine power that was at work through the ministry of Philip as he preached the gospel and as he performed signs and wonders and miracles. And it had its effect on confirming the people of Samaria the truthfulness of the message that he preached. As we said last week and as we've said before, the signs, the wonders, the miracles that are performed throughout the book of Acts are not the end-all, be-all in and of themselves. They're amazing, they're magnificent, but they serve a purpose, and their purpose is to what? It is to point us to Christ. It is to validate the message that the, that the apostles and the, the disciples are preaching, that it is true as demonstrated by these signs and wonders. And here's the thing, as we see the gospel being proclaimed in the book of Acts here in chapter 8, and we see its effectiveness, we sometimes need to be reminded of the fact that this gospel is the same gospel that we preach here today. And this gospel has the same power and same effectiveness today as it did then. 
I think we find that sometimes hard to believe because when we read in the book of Acts and we read of all of the signs and wonders being done, of how everyone was being healed and every demon was being cast out, the sick were being made well, the blind were given sight, the lame were made to walk, and we look around today and we think, well, I guess the Spirit must not be at work anymore. I'm not seeing those things happening, at least not in my church or the churches that I'm familiar with or the people around Evansville. But that would be missing the point, wouldn't it? That would be seeing the wrong purposes in the signs and wonders. Because whether or not signs or wonders are accompanied, are accompanying the message of the gospel, the gospel is still effective. So that when we preach the gospel today, the Holy Spirit still works, still moves, still saves. If that weren't the case, then this would all be futile, wouldn't it? Everything that me and Robert and Aaron do on Sunday morning up here, every time you engage with your coworkers in your workplaces or with your families, and you discuss the gospel, you tell them the gospel, it would all be futile, wouldn't it? We don't believe that's the case. We believe the Holy Spirit is just as active today as he was then. And our world today needs the kind of supernatural upgrade that the gospel brings. Our world today needs to be shown the same way the Samaritans did, that whatever it is that is in your life that you think is great, that you think is useful, that you think is powerful, it is nothing compared to the gospel and the power that the Holy Spirit brings. We live in a world today that's full of what people would consider to be neat things or helpful things. We might not have Simon the Magicians running around doing magic and sorcery, at least not in the formal sense, and they maybe wouldn't call it that. But we do have a world and a culture that's enamored with all kinds of similar things that, that while they are, they are maybe neat in and of themselves or, or kind of cool to look at, ultimately are things that pale in comparison to the gospel. I think about things like life coaches. This is like a, a new phenomenon in our age of this, this category, this job, this profession of being a, a life coach. And largely, I don't even really understand what the term life coach means. But what I do know is that a lot of the life coach advice that I see on the internet, that I see on Facebook, that I see on YouTube, wherever else, is a whole lot of nonsense. It's a whole lot of mumbo jumbo. People that have, have learned the art of, of maybe public speaking or, or of speaking in and cool or profound ways so that people listen to them. And maybe there is some benefit that comes to people's lives from, from life coaches. That might be the case. I can't deny that. But there's something far greater than a life coach for us, right? Something that has a far greater impact both in this life and the next. And that's the gospel. Even more so than that, beyond just the, the phenomenon of life coaching, which is a whole thing in and of itself. One other thing that we've seen in our, in our culture today is a, a rise and in increase in new age teaching, in new forms of paganism. Though they might not take that name, they might not call themselves the, the occult or, or paganism, many of the practices are the same. People are enamored with things like crystals, and meditation, and visions. Things that, frankly, church family, are extremely dangerous. 
and likely things that might have been very similar to what Simon was a part of and partaking of. So even if it might, go, might not go by the same name, our culture today is, is ever enamored with these kinds of things. Things that compared to the glory of God and the gospel are mere trinkets or worse. What the world needs today, the same way the Samaritans needed, is a supernatural upgrade to the gospel. The next thing we see, the next section in verses 14 through 17, is we see a unique display of the Spirit's work. In verses 14 through 17, we have what I would consider to be a a somewhat difficult, or at least a somewhat contested passage in the book of Acts. And some scholars have said it's one of the most uh, confusing or unique passages in all of the New Testament because of what's presented for us. You see, throughout the scriptures, throughout the New Testament, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, or what is sometimes called the baptism of the Holy Spirit, happens at conversion. But what do we see in verses 14 through 17 of our text? We see this. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. We see in this passage a unique exception to what the Bible teaches to be true of the New Testament believers today. What does 1 Corinthians chapter 12 say? 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 13 says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. You see, the New Testament presents for us, as we read through our New Testaments, as if we are faithful scholars of God's word, we will see that over and over and over again, the pattern for believers is that at conversion, when the Holy Spirit does the work of regenerating a believer, he then enters into that believer and indwells them. And that is what we call the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But that's not what happens in this passage. This passage, or excuse me, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, shows us the truth that we see throughout the New Testament. That the baptism of the Holy Spirit is not some sort of second experience to be pursued or obtained by believers. But this is a, a teaching that is has grown increasingly common and is especially common among Pentecostal circles, this idea that, that there is salvation and that is the baptism into Jesus and that is an initial work that the Holy Spirit does to create a believer, right? But then there is a second work of the Holy Spirit, a second experience, if you will, in which the Holy Spirit then enters in and indwells that person when they are baptized in the Holy Spirit. And according to many in this tradition, it is, it is seen, it is um, made realized by the accompanying work of tongues or prophecy or something like that. The problem is, that's not really what the Bible teaches. Though they would point to this passage and say, yes, it is. Here we have an example. And so it is, 
up to us to be faithful students of God word, God's word and ask, what do we do with this passage? What is going on here? How are we to understand what's happening here? Notice that I said at the beginning of this, uh, uh, the beginning of our sermon today, that this is what we could call the beginning of chapter two of the expansion of the gospel. Gospel expansion, chapter two. This is the extension of the kingdom of God to the ends of the earth. And this is something that we see happening in Acts that is completely unique. That God is doing a special and unique work of spreading the gospel to the nations. And during this period, as God is doing a unique and particular work, we see certain unique and particular things that God did in these times and in these moments for a particular reason that are not intended to be understood as normative for the church today. The point that he is giving here, and I think the point that we ought to see, this has been something that many scholars have put forward and what I agree with, is that the reason that the Holy Spirit wasn't given right away, let me stop right there. We always have to be careful when we say things like this, don't we? The text doesn't give us the reason, right? This is us seeking to understand what is going on in this passage and to an extent seeking to understand what is God's purpose here. So let me preface with that. That's what I'm now engaging in. But I think it makes sense to understand and to see that the reason the Holy Spirit is not initially given and a purpose that is accomplished by having Peter and John, the apostles from Jerusalem, come down and lay their hands on these people for them to receive the Holy Spirit is to indicate a very important point. And that is that the miraculous event of salvation and redemption that has come to the Samaritans is not a new movement. It is not something different than what happened in Jerusalem, but rather it is a continuation of the same work that God began in Jerusalem. It is in essence like, like lighting a fire. A fire has been lit in Jerusalem, as we know, and it's a fire that has infuriated the Jewish leaders, right? The reason here then that we are intended to see and understand this passage the way we do that it is not normative for the church, but it was done for a particular reason, is to see that what happened in Samaria here now as people are coming to faith in Christ, as they are believing, as they're being baptized, is to understand that this is not a new fire that has been sparked, but rather a fire that has simply spread from Jerusalem to Judea. If you recall your, your understanding of the relationship between the Jews and the Samaritans, what kind of relationship did they have? It was not a good relationship. In fact, they pretty well hated one another. The Jews and the Samaritans were oftentimes at enmity with one another, at odds one another. And so you could see how it would be very easy if these were viewed as two separate events, one sort of Pentecostal movement at Jerusalem and then another movement, another fire that has started in Samaria you could see how from either side it could easily be stated or be, be thought that, well, what the Samaritans have is something different than what the Jews have in Jerusalem. You know, they have kind of their own movement, and that's great and that's fine, but it's not the same as ours. It's not as significant as ours. For ours happened in Jerusalem. It happened to the Jews. Theirs is kind of the Samaritan version of what we have. Already seeds of disunity would have begun to be sowed, wouldn't they? We can easily see and understand how that is. But to have representatives, 
Peter and John come from the apostles in Jerusalem to come and lay their hands on them. And at that moment, the Holy Spirit to be poured out upon them and demonstrated by signs and wonders. It was proof for all around that this was not some second movement. It was not some new movement or any lesser movement. It was a continuation of what God was already doing and had already begun in Jerusalem. And it served to unify God's church, not under the banner of some particular race or some particular access to the temple, but under the banner of the Holy Spirit. All were united together as one, whether Jew or Samaritan, and as we will see in the future, or Gentile. By doing this, God made it clear that this was one movement that was accomplished by him through the Holy Spirit and that all were together one, a part of the family of God. There is no Jew or Greek or Jew or Samaritan in the kingdom of God. There are children of God. This is what I would kind of describe and and what we would teach here at Redeemer Fellowship Church, so we wouldn't always put it this way, is a true apostolic succession. Now, some of you have heard this term apostolic succession before. It's, it's uh, found in the Roman Catholic Church. It's found in certain denominations of Christianity. It's the idea that, that, that succession is passed down from the apostles as they laid their hands on certain men, ordained them for ministry. Then those men laid their hands on other men, and there is a succession of laying on of hands and ordaining for ministry passed down from the apostles. We here at Redeemer Fellowship Church, we do not believe that that is what true apostolic succession is. We believe that true apostolic succession is found in the message preached. That is, we are united to the apostles and that the same gospel of Jesus Christ that they preached, we preach also. And in that way, we are united. And wherever the gospel of Jesus Christ is proclaimed, and wherever the church is practicing what God has called the church to practice, and people are being saved, the church is found there, regardless of whose hand was laid on who. This is what we see here. Not just the fact that Peter and John happened to be apostles, but the fact that the message that was proclaimed in Samaria was the same message proclaimed in Jerusalem, and it is that that unites us together under one banner. And I would just give Just a a final couple warnings against why I think it's important to recognize this is a difficult passage because indeed it presents for us an exception to the rule that God in this case poured out the Holy Spirit after a time after their salvation. It's important to recognize though that this is not a normative teaching, a normative teaching or understanding of a second experience of the Holy Spirit And I think there are some dangers that are associated with that kind of teaching. First of all, that kind of teaching creates a sort of two-level Christianity where you inevitably have some Christians who, yeah, you're a Christian, yes, you're saved, but you haven't been spirit-baptized yet. There's a level that you just haven't quite attained to yet uh, that's got you here. I mean, you're saved, but you're not like spirit-filled, right? That's a bad way to view things, isn't it? That is another form of disunity among the body. Additionally, and I think it goes right along with that same problem, 
inevitably it puts man in control of the Holy Spirit. For indeed, the, the means for obtaining spirit baptism are then found in what you are doing and what you can do and what you can accomplish in order to bring the Holy Spirit upon you. And that is not at all what the Bible teaches. That is a works-centric teaching of the gospel. And it is false. You see, the Holy Spirit is sent by God to do His will, to do His bidding, and be poured out on whomever God deems it. Not on whomever chooses it for themselves, but whomever God chooses to pour the Spirit upon. We see in this picture, though it is complicated, it's important for us to see and recognize that what is demonstrated here is that the same work that was begun in Jerusalem is now continued and overflowed and poured out into Samaria. And we know it's going to go even further than that. Finally then, point number three, and then our, our last section of this passage, we see, we return to this man named Simon, and we see Simon's heart is exposed. In verses 18 through 24, we, we return back to this man, Simon, who, if you recall from a few verses earlier, was also baptized and followed Philip and indeed was amazed at the signs and great miracles that Philip performed. But here now in verses 18 through 20, we see his heart is exposed. Here in this second chapter of gospel expansion, we're already seeing some of the same problems that will be found in the church for the rest of time until the Lord comes. We see in this example of Simon, a person who sees great signs and wonders being done, who sees what is for him an advantage or something that is attractive about Christianity, about the faith, about the church, and yet he misses Christ. John Piper uses an example uh, in his sermon on this same text, and I'm going to steal it because I think it was helpful. He says, if you ever, ever have a, an infant, a little baby, and the first time you ever see something, you want to draw that child's attention to what you're looking at. You say, look up there at that, at that airplane, and you point. What do little infants inevitably look at when you point at something? They look at your hand, don't they? They don't look at where you're pointing. They look at your hand. And they think, what are you doing? What are you holding your hand out there like that for? You see, they don't quite understand yet that what you're intending is to direct them towards something else. The point is not look at my hand, but look at where my hand is pointing you, where you should direct your attention, where you should direct your gaze. I think what we see in the life of Simon is one who saw the signs and wonders being done by Philip. And he was so taken by those signs and wonders. So taken that he even admitted and understood these are things that are done miraculously, done by the divine, done by God. And at least in some respect, the text tells us in 13, Simon himself believed. He believed. But we need to be careful in understanding what exactly kind of the kind of belief that Simon had. For what do we see in our passage now in 18 and following? Listen to what the text says. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive 
the Holy Spirit. So clearly there was some sort of manifestation of the Holy Spirit that was coming upon these people as the apostles laid their hands on them and they were filled with the Holy Spirit to the point that when Simon saw as they were laying their hands on them, this, this work was being done, this miracle was happening, he wanted it. He wanted to obtain it. He wanted it for himself. And he foolishly offered to buy it. He thought that this was a power that he could buy and take for himself and use for his own vain glory. You see, what Simon did was that he saw the finger of God, the powers and the signs and wonders that were intended to point to Christ and the truthfulness of the gospel. And he was completely taken by the finger, completely enamored with the signs and wonders and said, I want those rather than I want Christ. We see in this demonstration the fact that there indeed is a kind of belief that can lead people to unite themselves to fellow believers, that can unite themselves to the church, and even to the point that he was following Philip. This guy looked committed. He looked like a faithful Samaritan church member ought to look. But then at once his heart was exposed, and what is seen is described by Peter where he says, may your silver perish with you because you thought that you could attain the gift of God with money. And he says this, listen to these words. You have neither lot nor part in this matter for your heart is not right before God. Repent therefore of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. You see, this man's heart was exposed and Peter saw for what he truly was that he was not one who was a truly seeker after Christ. He was not truly seeking after Christ, not a lover of Christ, but one who sought what he could get for his own gain. One who was enamored by miracles and signs and wonders and desired only those that he thought would benefit him. For many, it might not be signs and wonders that attract them, but other perceived benefits of the Christian faith, and of going to church. And indeed, we're living in a time when it's becoming increasingly less of a social benefit to claim to be a Christian. But even still, there is some, for some people, they see a benefit for themselves, something they can gain from it. For some, maybe it's just a better kind of moral living. Maybe it's more ease in this life if they think that they sort of please God and he'll give them an easy life. Certainly, when you look at politicians and how many of them ascribe to some sort of, some form of Christianity, the numbers are vast, and I don't think any of us really believes that the overwhelming majority of our politicians are faithful followers of Christ. We know that there is still some benefit that people might see in claiming Christ, in following the teachings, coming to church partaking in the aspects, the outward displays of Christianity. But unless their desire is for Christ, then they, like Simon, are still stuck in bitterness and the bond of iniquity. Which is why the message that we proclaim in the gospel is a Christ 
Christ-centered message. Not one of the things that God is going to do for you here on this life. Not even one of, of solely fear of what God might do to you. Because indeed, fear struck Simon's heart after Peter told him this. What does he say? He says, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Some might think this looks like repentance, but notice what he never does. He never acknowledges his guilt and his sin before the Lord. Never recognizes the holiness of God that he has wronged. Simon was one who, as Jesus spoke in Matthew chapter 13, we would call a weed or a tear. Jesus spoke of, the, of this issue in Matthew chapter 13, verse 24 through 30, when he, when he gave the parable of the wheat and the tares. This parable that, that there was this farmer who planted a field of wheat, he and his servants, and, and then an enemy snuck in at night. And what did the enemy do? The enemy planted weeds in his field. And the, the servants of this man said, what, what, what are we going to do? Should we go in and, and rip out the weeds of your, out of this field? Should we remove the tares from the wheat? And what did the master say? He said, no. Let the weeds grow, and then when it is time for harvest, we will harvest it all and separate the weeds so that they might be burned. What we see in that parable and what we have to recognize is true in the church, that just because a person finds themselves in communion with the church, just because a person finds themselves in fellowship with people who claim Christ, even in fellowship with people who truly know and love Christ, does not mean that they themselves love Christ. Even if it looks like it. Even if they've gone through some of the rituals like baptism, as Simon did, his heart was still stuck in bitterness. These early pictures of this infant church here in the book of Acts present us with a lot of amazing moments where the, the glory of God is on display as well as moments when the Lord is working in unique ways at unique times in redemptive history, as we've seen in our passage today. But you also see that the church, even in its infancy, was dealing with some of the same problems that we continue to deal with in the church today. We see in this passage, in this passage both a kind of encouragement and an exhortation. We see an encouragement. We are encouraged by seeing how the Lord worked through the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. And we trust that in his providence, the same control that the Lord exercises over his church then, he is exercising over his church now. We talked about it last week, but it's worth saying again. The church in the book of Acts here, as they're facing persecution, as they're being scattered, as all these things are happening, had every reason to think, this might be the end of our movement. This might be the end of us. The Jews are going to persecute us to the end, and they're going to snuff us out. But God had other plans, didn't he? We look and see the providence of God, the sovereignty of God at work in redemption. And we can trust that even today, God is sovereignly working in the same way for his church. You know, as I think back over the life of Redeemer Fellowship Church, and I think even all the way back to as we started, I remember when we planted our church, and I was talking with a, a fellow believer who I'd run into at the YMCA, and uh, he was a fellow uh, guy who had helped plant a church on the west side years ago, and, and the church had eventually moved to the east side. And I remember telling him, yeah, we were planting a church on the west side of Evansville. And his response was, good luck. 
I was pretty taken aback by that. He said, the west side is so hard to plant a church in. It's just not a good place to plant. And in the moment, I was a little bit discouraged, a little bit taken aback. But you know what? Not because of any sort of special qualities that myself or Robert or Matt or, or Sean or any who were, who were here as a part of our church that was planning. Not because of any special qualities that we had, but because the Lord chose to do a work. Here we stand. Over the past few years, guess what? Our church has been through some major changes. Do you know how many churches our size end up going under because a lead pastor leaves? I want to tell you, it's a lot. And yet, just a few years ago, our lead pastor, the one who stood in this pulpit and preached week after week, by God's grace, was called somewhere else. And even though it was scary, I can tell you, in our elders' meetings, myself, Robert, Aaron, we were intimidated. But you know what? God had a plan in all of that. And not because, again, we are something great. God has chosen to do a work in his church here on the west side of Evansville at Redeemer Fellowship Church. And we look at that and we look at what he's doing here in the book of Acts and we give him praise and we give him glory and we find encouragement in the fact that whatever the Lord is gonna choose to do, he's gonna choose to do it regardless of what's happening in the world around us. Regardless of the events that happen, whether inside or outside the church, he is faithful to his people. And guess what? If the Lord decides a year from now to shut down Redeemer Fellowship Church, he's gonna be just as faithful then to his church and to his people. Be encouraged by this when we read the story of the infant church in Acts and how the Lord was working there. But we also have for us, I think, what can serve as an exhortation of sorts. An example given by Peter and John of how we are to deal with those who are part of our fellowship yet demonstrate a hard heart, a heart of bitterness. In other words, how we are to deal with the tares. We're given our example here. Because guess what, church family? We're gonna find that as the church grows, and even as the church stands right now, there are people that come to our church that do not know Christ. They might look the part. They might have been baptized. They might know the right language to use. They might even serve in some sort of role here at the church. But there are people that are just like in the early church, going to come be a part of the fellowship that we have and yet are hard-hearted. And when that hard-heartedness is exposed, when that root of bitterness is brought to bear, we are to do exactly like Peter and John did. And that is by all the grace that the Lord has given us and in love, we are to call that person to repent. We are to share with them the need for repentance and trusting in Jesus Christ for salvation. It would be wrong of us to see someone who we know is a tear and say, eh, it's all good. It's wrong of us when we know what the parable Jesus spoke in Matthew 13 tells us is coming for those people. What is coming for them is God's wrath. And we are called to, as Peter does here, call them to repent to turn to Christ and to worship him alone, not for all the good things that might come from, from being a part of a church or being united in, in name only to Redeemer Fellowship Church, but to be united to Christ truly and rightly. And that's what we are called to do. That is the message we are called to give. That's why each and every week I stand up here, Robert, Aaron, stand up here, 
and we continually proclaim repentance and faith, right? It would be easy to say, look, we're church folks, pastors, we get it, we've already done this, you don't have to tell us to repent, you don't have to tell us to trust in Christ, you don't really have to tell us the, the, the basic building blocks of the gospel anymore, we get it. But the reality is, whether you are a believer or an unbeliever here in this room, the basic building blocks of the gospel need to be regularly on our minds and on our hearts. Because it's so easy to forget them, isn't it? It's so easy to forget that God has loved us apart from anything we do. It's so easy to forget that the Lord has poured his grace out upon us by his own will and by his own mercy. It's so easy for us to forget all these things that his grace is unending for us. So we need regularly to be reminded of these things, the basic building blocks of the gospel, and especially so that anyone in this place who might be a tear, who might be a weed, who might not truly love and worship Christ, might be brought to repentance. Let's pray.